Beloved, we are in the middle of a series this fall called Begging Jesus. We're going into certain texts where we find situations where desperate people are finding Jesus as all-sufficient for their needs. And on behalf of those of you visiting with us this morning, on behalf of our congregation, I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us. Our text today is Luke 7, 1 through 10. Luke 7, 1 through 10, it's provided in the bulletin as is a little outline for you, and you can find that in your Bible. Luke 7, 1 to 10. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, okay, we got, hang on, sorry, Lord, for interrupting the reading of your word. We have some sound challenges. Down lower. Good, great. Take two. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Faith. Who lives by faith? Everybody. Not just religious people. The skeptic, the atheist, the agnostic. We all exercise faith all the time. You need proof? As soon as you get in a car and drive out on a road, you do so by faith. Faith is transferring your trust to someone else. Faith is putting your welfare in someone else's hands. So whenever you're driving a car, you are implicitly trusting other drivers to obey the law, to not swerve into you, to not hit you from behind, 
to do the common decent thing of staying in their lanes. If you've ever driven a car, you have ultimately done so by faith. Christians place their trust, they transfer their reliance for their right standing with God, for peace with God, for their assurance that the moment they die, they will be in God's paradise forever. They transfer their trust into the hands of Jesus. We find Jesus Christ, because of his work, his love, his death, his resurrection, utterly sufficient to trust to be right with God. And today's story is about the quality of a man's faith. Notice how Jesus calls it out. Verse 9, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Beloved, that makes this man's faith highly extraordinary and worthy of our examination and our imitation. So let's look at two distinct features of his faith based on the text. First, humility, and secondly, confidence. First, humility. The centurion's faith is overflowing with humility. What is humility? I want you to think of humility as two lenses through which you make sense of life, through which you literally see everything. You see God, you see yourself, you see relationships, you see all the tasks God has set before you. And those two lenses are grace and mercy. Humility interprets everything by grace. I have received far more than I deserve. Mercy, I have not received what I deserved. Humility is a grace that grips a human heart with a profound sense that God is exceedingly merciful, exceedingly kind, beyond anything I des uh, deserve, even I desire. God is far more merciful to me than I have any sense. I'm unworthy of God's provision, God's protection, God's kindness, and yet I have received it. That's humility. It sees everything through these two lenses. Grace, I've received far more than I deserve. Mercy, God has not given me what my sins deserve. What's the proof in the text of this man's humility? He's a centurion. That means he's a captain of a hundred soldiers. And we're told that he has a highly valued servant who is sick. But it isn't the servant who's doing the begging. It isn't the centurion who's doing the begging. It's the elders of the local synagogue begging Jesus to come heal the servant because the centurion feels unworthy to have Jesus even come into his house. Verse 6, he sends word, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Do you see the sweet irony? Sweet irony. The elders say to Jesus, you've got to do this because he's worthy. The centurion says, I'm not worthy. I want to take a deep dive into his humble faith and show you how 
humility produces freedom at a number of different levels. And you can see the points I'm going to make on your outline, if that would help you. His faith is profoundly liberating, because it's a humble faith. For example, he's free from the need to prove his worth. So his request for Jesus' healing power is solely based on Jesus' worth in spite of his own unworthiness. He's not trapped by the lust to be honored, to have Jesus come to his house. If it was me, I'd say, man, come to my house and make me look important. He is content, beloved, to let others determine his worthiness, not himself. There is not an ounce of presumption. Verse 7, I don't presume to come to you. Why ultimately? Because he sees that in light of the greatness of Jesus, he's relatively nothing. Do you experience that humility? In light of the supreme, superior, surpassing greatness of Jesus, you feel humbly small. Secondly, he's free to honor the authority of structure of the Jewish people. You couldn't blame him if he said, okay, 100 soldiers, go get Jesus. If he doesn't come, point your swords at him. Bring him by, by power to heal my highly valued servant. He doesn't do that. He calls for the elders of the Jews. He honors a God-given authority structure. He doesn't take matters into his own hand. He says, look, God has, God has set in place for the good of his people, those who would shepherd those people, they're called elders, and that's why in our Presbyterian form of government, you elect elders. And when you become a member of a church like Trinity, you take a membership vow that promises to subject yourself to the government and discipline of the church. You acknowledge what the centurion acknowledged so freely. That's a whole other sermon to talk about the freedom of doing that. I just want to make that point. His freedom gives him the grace to honor the authority structure that God has set in place. He's free from the abuse of power. He is not like most of the Romans in Palestine at that time, abusing their authority over the Jews. No. He shows favor to the Jews, so much so that we learn in verse 5, the elders plea with Jesus is, he loves our nation. He built us the synagogue. How can you not do this, Lord? See, they don't tr the elders don't treat the centurion like an enemy because he hasn't treated them like an enemy. They're all too glad to grant his request to summons Jesus to his aid. There's a great principle out here for those of you who run businesses. If you're a boss, you're an owner of a company, you have people under your authority. Paul writes in Colossians 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. This man understands that principle. And this is God's way of keeping employers from being abusive. First, understand that God in heaven would never abuse you. He exercises his ultimate authority in your life for your good. You bosses and masters must do the same thing. 
Next, he's freed from the need to be served. See, the notion that everybody in this area, in Capernaum, is under his dominion, he, he doesn't use that. Instead, he uses his authority and his power to bless the community. He builds them their synagogue. You know what that means, beloved? If God has given you power, God has entrusted you with authority, God has given you time, God has given you money, God has given you gifts, do you know what end to which God has given you those things? To serve people. And this is a body of God's flock who understand that. There are lots and lots of you who joyfully serve to make this church what it is. It isn't what it is because you're staff and you're pastors. It's because of this army of Jesus, well, Dennis would call you Jesus-loving fools, who because you love Jesus, you understand that the gifts, the time, the money, the authority God has given you is to serve others. So I encourage you to think about that. There's no such thing as a Christian who says, enough of the action, I just want to sit on the sideline and watch. He's free from the need to be served in the pattern of the Lord Jesus that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give us life a ransom for many. Last one. We could probably tease that more. He's freed by his humble faith to be other-centered. So he sends his friends to the elders. The elders get Jesus. Jesus is on the way. The centurion finds out about this. And what does he do? He sends word, verse 6, Lord, don't trouble yourself. He senses that there may be something precarious for the centurion about the centurion coming, uh, excuse me, something precarious for Jesus, a Jew, coming into the house of a Gentile. That, I'm speculating there. But when he says, don't trouble yourself, he is exercising humble other-centeredness. He is putting the interests of Jesus ahead of his own. All things being equal, wouldn't you love to have the miracle worker in your house? Of course you would. Wouldn't you love to be an eyewitness to the, to the, he knew his servant was going to get healed. He knew it. Wouldn't you love to be the eyewitness of that? He puts Jesus' interests ahead of his own. He says, don't trouble yourself. That's humility, beloved. That is the charter of humility we find in Philippians 2. This Philippians 2, 1 through 11, it's like the Magna Carta of biblical humility. Paul writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility count others more significant than yourselves. How many times did you do that this week? <laughs> count others more significant than yourselves. And he goes on to say, look out for the interests of others, not your own interests. That's humility. You have an appraisal of grace and mercy, and you realize they're more important. I want to put his interests ahead of hers. That's this beautiful freedom. So you're wondering, what is at the root of this humility? Humility is the fruit of something. What's at the root of it? He has an accurate 
assessment of the authority he's been given. Verse 8, I too am a man set under authority. By using the word too, he recognizes that Jesus is a man under authority. He has likely heard Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus answers to his Father. Jesus is under the authority of his Father. And he doesn't take his own authority given to him from the Roman government for granted. In fact, here's, here's the reality for the centurion. His authority doesn't make him something. It makes him humble. Why me? Why should someone like me been called to this position of authority? Suppose with me for a moment that he who built the synagogue actually spent some time there listening to what was going on. It is likely, a little bit of a stretch for the preacher, he heard read from 1 Chronicles 17, 16, David, King David, probably of all the people in the history of the world who have been given authority, there's nobody more important than King David. King David said this, reflecting on his authority, the blessings, his kingdom, what God had lavished upon him. David said this, who am I, O Lord God? And who is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now you've been pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you, for it is you, O Lord, who have blessed. It's humility. It's acknowledging the obvious. It's looking at everything through the lens of grace and mercy. Beloved, it's Civics 101. And it's why when Janae prayed a few minutes ago, she prayed essentially at the election that we would have these kinds of leaders in our country who don't think they're something because they've been elected, but it makes them humble and they wield their authority under the hand of God fearing God, wanting nothing more to do what pleases God. Give us those kind of leaders. Please, Lord. And you know, it's the same for church leaders. Same for me, for Jesse, for Kelly, for your elders. It's the same thing. Peter probably heard. He was probably in earshot of all of this. And he would later write in his first epistle when he addressed elders, he wrote, shepherd the flock of God among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Maybe he learned that grace watching the centurion. Let me, let me close out the humility portion of the sermon with this question. What's this mean for you? Fill in the blank, beloved. Well, I've just learned that relationships don't work without... Okay, I'll give you a second try. My wife got it right. Hum relationships... You relate. <laughs> Take three. Relationships don't work without. They really don't. You know this in your experience. You know how your pride has hurt your relationships. You know how other people's unchecked ambition, pride, selfishness, self-absorption, self-promotion has hurt their relationship with you. Relationships don't work without humility. Don't try relationships without humility. Peter would go on in 1 Peter 5 to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility toward one another. It's what makes a church healthy. Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Augustine, all said humility is the fountainhead of all Christian virtue. I think they're right. So how do you know this humility in action? You've put on the lenses, grace and mercy. And you've said, in my relationships, in everything I'm going to approach, I'm going to assume my sins are far more dangerous and greater in number than the person I'm dealing with. In other words, I'm the greatest threat I am to my ministry, to my marriage, to my kids, to my coworkers. My pride, if left unchecked, is the greatest threat to everything in my life. It's true whether I acknowledge it or not. Relationships don't work without humility. So, beloved, wake up every morning and plead with Jesus that he not leave you to yourself, that he bring you to his cross. And there you see what your pride did. It crucified the most humble man that ever lived. And at that cross, he is so quick to pour out his grace, his compassion, his kindness, his forgiveness, and the heart filled with those things can't help but let that overflow in their relationship. In other words, you'll never be humble until you meet Jesus in his humble and gentle heart. Confidence. If you're a linguistic fan, you know this is a bit of a misnomer because you know that the word confidence means literally with faith. So it's okay to say that his faith is marked by humility. How can you say that his faith is marked by confidence? Well, I'm saying it anyway. You tell me, beloved, what is the confidence that makes his faith so marvelous in Jesus' eyes? Verse 7. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Where's his confidence? It's in the power of Jesus' word. Remember, this is a man who feels categorically unworthy. And yet he has this bold confidence. Say the word and it will happen. Here's what this looks like in your salvation. When you look to a holy God and you desire to be in his presence and at peace with him and his paradise forever. And you are ruthlessly honest with yourself. You realize there are a thousand trees standing in the way of that vision representing the 10,000 ways you've sinned against God. You know you can't make a claim on God's presence and yet there is one tree that knocks them all down. The cross of Jesus. It is powerful enough for the unworthy to say, God, forgive me. And it was Jesus who said the one word on the cross. What was that word? Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. In the power of that word, you can find hope, promise, assurance, certainty for cleansing and reconciliation with God. Jesus pronounced the word of salvation and faith believes it. That's why, beloved, there is salvation in no other name. His name alone is mercy, grace, salvation, hope, cleansing. Who in the history of the world ever promised human beings 
that what they did could be trusted to make them absolutely holy for the presence of God. Only this Jesus. So I want to ask this question. Where does this faith come from? What's the, where does it originate? There are two sources. First, look at verse 3. When he heard about Jesus. And that begs my question. What did he hear about Jesus that somehow led to this faith? Well, the word on the street is some good stuff and some bad stuff, some false reports and some true reports. There are conflicting reports, but by the grace of God, he has believed the true report. Incidentally, if you consider yourself a skeptic, a, a seeker, you, you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, there might be a multitude of reasons for that. We would love to explore that with you. But whatever you've heard about Jesus, he would love for you to hear him speak for himself. So start reading the Gospels where Jesus speaks to you specifically about his life. Please take Jesus' word for who he is, not anybody else's. So, there are false reports and true reports. I can only summarize the false reports. He's a drunkard. He's an imposter. He's a demoniac. And he's a lawbreaker, particularly with the religious people. They didn't like the way he used the Sabbath. Those are the false reports. And to say that Jesus was one of the most misunderstood figures in all of history is an understatement. What's the true report? What is it that created faith in the heart of this Gentile soldier? Well, the short answer is enough to trust Jesus completely. Let me tease out the long answer. The short answer, there's enough he heard to completely trust Jesus. Here's the long answer. What did he hear about Jesus? He heals people. He casts out demons. He teaches with authority. The Greek is exousia, out of his being. He confronts corruption in the church. He advocates paying taxes to the Romans. Think that meant something for the centurion? It's his paycheck. He sees himself as a servant, yet he acts as the Lord of all creation. Jesus favors the poor, has strong warnings for the rich. He's called the Son of God, but yet never wore the title with a need for self-exaltation. This Jesus does not fear man, he fears God, and he demands the same of everyone. He can't be bribed. He is put off by self-righteousness that he himself is absolutely flawlessly righteous in every thought, word, and deed. He receives worship from people, yet he's got no money to his name. And he grounds his identity in the Old Testament scriptures, which he quotes extensively. In summary, what did the centurion hear? He heard that Jesus exercises his authority for the good of helpless sinners and for the glory of God. Okay, so you see, his faith is based on objective content about Jesus. But there's another critical piece, and this is the end of the sermon. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. So you can have all the information about Jesus there is to know. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't work the miracle the grace of believing and trusting it, transferring your reliance to it, it won't do you any good. 
And this is what the Holy Spirit is so pleased to do. He's worked it in this man's heart, right? He says, you don't have to come near, just say the word. And it's the Holy Spirit that uses the truth about Jesus to birth faith. If you don't have faith in Jesus, you think, I could never get there. This seems way beyond my grasp. Ask. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you faith. He will always answer that request. You see how the power of, 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 the, of, the, of, of the Holy Spirit and the power of the spoken word comports his own experience? I love, I love verse 8. I to him, a man set under authority. I say to soldiers, come, they go, come, another dinner. They all have to obey me. And so here's the thing. If you ask the Spirit of Jesus to give you tr saving trust in Jesus, the Father will say, go and do that. Just don't leave today if you've never done that. What a gift. And that faith will begin to grow. So those of you, last thing I'll say, those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, ask for more faith. Ask for greater faith. Ask for clear understanding of all that it means to know, to love, to adore, to follow, to savor Jesus Christ. Faith is meant to grow, to flourish, to flower. And beloved, as you do that, you must also do this. Nurture this faith in the Word of God. Peter would write in his first epistle, Long for the pure milk of the Word of God, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving the centurion faith. Thank you for giving us faith in the Savior. We transfer our trust for our eternal well-being into the hands of Jesus, whose cross and resurrection have accomplished all things necessary for our reconciliation with our God and Father. Thank you. Increase our faith Help our unbelief, for Jesus' sake, amen.